to break the word. Lord, we want to not just hear a nice sermon and walk away from it. We want something that will challenge us. As we're in the book of Mark, I pray that the words today would guide and direct us and prepare us for something that we might face out in the world. And so, Lord, would you fill in with your Holy Spirit and, 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 and us as well as we sit ready to receive what it is that you have for us today. We love you. We want to hear your word, and we thank you for providing it for us. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to Mark chapter 2. We will finish this precious chapter up. Communion always sets the stage to hearing from God. Makes our hearts right before him. It gives us a tender heart, a spirit that says, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Uh, that, that is the benefit of a time of praise and worship and giving glory to the one who, who saved us. Mark chapter 2 contains four separate little vignettes, little snippets that Mark picks up on uh, as important in his, uh, in his narrative. Uh, we're going to look at the last two today, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? I don't know what your thoughts are on fasting, or if you're aware of what the biblical background of fasting is. Uh, some people fast regularly, uh, saved and unsaved people alike. Um, my older brother, who is not a Christian, uh, has fasted throughout much of his adult life. In fact, uh, when he turned 70, he decided, um, I will fast for 40 days. I mean, if Jesus did it, uh, I can do it. And he put himself in the hospital. And his brothers, like myself, reminded him, <coughs> Jesus was 30 when he did it. You're 70. And he, uh, he nearly killed himself. People fast for different reasons. Uh, John's disciples probably had been fasting because he was in prison. Uh, we learned that back in, in chapter 1 and verse 14. Uh, devout Jews, especially the religious community, would, would fast regularly. Uh, now, some have said, well, the only required fast was to take place on the Day of Atonement. Well, here's what I looked up. In Leviticus 16 and 29, it says on the Day of, of Atonement, they were, quote, to deny themselves. It doesn't use the word fasting. That's interesting. Now, it doesn't mean that people didn't fast in the Old Testament. There are plenty of examples of that. But in that passage in Leviticus 16, where they were told the Jews all had to fast on the Day of Atonement, it says literally they had to deny themselves. What's implied and taken more literally is that they would humble or afflict themselves. Now, of course, on the Sabbath, they were to do no work. That was an affliction and a humility and a hardship all on its own. But it was interpreted in later times by the rabbis. It meant fasting. I'm of the opinion that God said what he meant and meant what he said. He knows the word fasting and didn't use it in that passage regarding the Day of Atonement. In other words, there are no biblically mandated and required fasts if the text is taken literally, despite how the, the rabbis uh, see it. After the Babylonian captivity had ended, the Jews decided, well, uh, maybe we should fast during not only the Day of Atonement, and, and they added a total of four fasts to the Jewish calendar. But that wasn't what the law said. It wasn't what the Old Testament said or taught at all. In fact, they were adding to the Word of God. Now, isn't there a prohibition in the Old Testament as well as the New about adding to or taking away from God's Word? In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, too, a place that most people are unaware of, God says, I'm giving you my Ten Commandments. I'm giving you my laws and my covenants. Do not add to these that I'm giving you today. Don't add to them. But there is something inside of us that says, if God says, go this far, if I go further, I'm more spiritual. And it can become a matter of, of pride. Oh, if I'm supposed to fast one day a week, maybe if I fast all week long, then, then people will think I'm really holy, really special. What is it about us inside here that wants to add to God's Word? There's also that tendency when we come across parts of Scripture that we find uncomfortable. 
we tend to take it out of God's Word. Now, God's Word deals with a wide variety of subjects that are hot topics in today's society. But if you're of a persuasion that says, I don't really want to hear what God has to say about this issue or that issue, then you've detracted from the Word of God, which is not a less sin than adding to the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word of God. Don't monkey with it. Don't take parts out of it just because you don't like them. You'd think that some Christians run around with a black magic marker just Xing out the ones they feel uncomfortable. Well, I really don't want to talk about that. I really don't want to see what God, God's Word has to say about this issue or that. And so they delete it out of God's Word. In fact, Thomas Jefferson wrote a version of the Bible where he actually took a penknife and he cut out all of the miracles that were found in the Bible because in his rational mind, miracles were irrational. He was so naturally minded, he had little room for the supernatural. And so he took it upon himself to literally cut out all of the miracles of the Bible. As you can imagine, he cut out significant portions, like the parting of the Red Sea, like Jesus rising from the dead. And he said, no, 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 those, those are miracles. Science today says miracles are not possible. The Bible has said from the very beginning, wasn't God's creation a miracle? So it starts in Genesis chapter 1, and it continues through the last chapter of the book of Revelation in the New Testament. The God we serve is not only a way maker, He's a miraculous God who moves miraculously throughout all periods of time. But sometimes you and I can get in a box, well, God is operating in a way that I feel uncomfortable. Let me just give you one for instance the exercise of the spiritual gifts. If you came out of a conservative church background, you may be loath to hear about the spiritual gifts. I came from a particular denomination 45 years ago that said, we don't believe that the miracles are for today, despite the fact that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Ephesians and Romans, it says that they are for today. But this denomination said, well, I don't speak in tongues, so I think that anybody that does is illegitimate. We tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You and I can do that with any of the spiritual gifts. Well, I don't have that gift. It must not be real. I've never prophesied, thus I don't believe in the gift of prophecy. Well, you may not have the gift of teaching, but that doesn't mean that there aren't Bible teachers around the world today. That's a silly notion to think that way. But you and I tend to disregard the things that we find uncomfortable. God says, do this, and you go, I'm not sure I want to do that. So out comes the pen knife. God says, be holy. You go, not sure I want to pay that price. God says, pick up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. And you go, ah, choo, choo, choo. not sure I can do that. That's our tendency. And that's what happened to the rabbinic community around the time of Jesus. They were so stuck in their ways. They were so uber conservative. They were so tied to 2,000 years of Jewish tradition that they left the law out of it. They left love out of it, grace, mercy, and they missed the Messiah when He came and espoused themselves to be so wise, so learned. Oh, they could quote the first five books of the Old Testament from memory, but they missed Jesus when the Son of God and the Son of Man came. Do you see what can happen to you and I as religious people? You should strive not to be a religious person. Jesus wasn't. You should strive to be a spirit-filled, on-fire Christian man or woman or child after God's own heart. That's what you should strive to do. But read Scripture and come at it with an open mind. Because if you start discounting the miracles, you're going to miss God totally. He's a God of miracles. You take your penknife and excise out all of the parts that God feels are important for His church to know, then you and I can commit grievous sin these last days because it's in society around us. So free up your thinking. Unshackle your mind today. Let God be God and let His Word stand on its own merit without you or I adding to it. Not only because it's absolutely forbidden in the Old Testament, Jesus said in the book of Revelation, anybody who adds to the words of this book, I'll add to them the plagues of this book. Well, you don't want that. 
Anyone who leaves out any of the words of this prophecy, Jesus said regarding the book of Revelation, I'll leave his or her name out of the book of life. You don't want a monkey with the Word of God. It is the Word of God. We don't need tradition to add to it, but the religious person feels that they're more spiritual if they outdo the requirements of the law, but the law could never save. The law could only condemn, but the Jews had slipped into this thinking that if I'm religious enough, if I do the commandments enough, if I, if I sacrifice enough, then I'll find acceptance in God's eyes. Where's the place for grace then? You're saved by grace, my Bible says. You're kept by grace, not by legalism, not by works, because you and I would be tempted to boast then. The Pharisees around the time of Christ typically fasted twice a week. But when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came and asked Jesus, how was it that they do it, but you guys don't? The question is, why do you fast? Why do you not fast? Do, should you fast because others do it? I think that's a poor reason, but that's exactly what they're asking Jesus. Hey, they're doing it. How come you're not doing it? Well, the world is out there robbing banks and committing murder. That doesn't mean you should do it. The world does all sorts of things. Just because others do, that's not a good reason. Of course not. Everybody knows the right reason to fast. It's to lose weight. I've not had success at that. No doubt John's disciples fasted for one reason, and the Pharisees probably fasted for a very different reason. John was in prison, awaiting execution at the hands of Herod. His disciples are fasting and mourning because they know the eventual outcome could be disastrous. The Pharisees fasted not because they were mourning or sorrowful or even seeking the face of God extra intently. They fasted because everybody noticed that they were fasting then. And they were then more spiritual than anybody else. Fasting does not make you more spiritual. It just makes you more hungry. Now, if you're hungry for God, that's great. If you're hungry for attention, you might be very disappointed. And so what the Jews would do is to make, oh, you, did you miss the fact that I'm fasting? Well, here, let me put on a real gaunt face. I'm not going to put on any makeup. I'm not going to shave. I'm going to leave my hair unkempt. And then I'm going to sprinkle some ashes on the top of my head. Then you'll know how spiritual I am. Why do you fast? Why do you fast? Fasting. The Greek word is interesting, nastus. It means to abstain from food, and it doesn't mean to abstain from anything else. The biblical word has to do with the abstinence of food. It denies the flesh. It denies self so that one might give full attention to spiritual matters. So some people, when they came to Jesus, he answered them in verse 19 and said, well, how can the, breast, the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is still with him? They cannot so long as they ha have him with him. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. On that day, they will fast. A Jewish wedding celebration was a celebration of joy. It lasted for a week long, and there was wine, and there was entertainment, and there was food. It was a joyous and festive occasion. Uh, and so it would be unthinkable that somebody would come to a wedding feast and say, I'm sorry, I'm fasting. That No, nobody even thinks in those kind of terms. During that week-long celebration, the rabbis actually declared that joy was more important than observing religious ritual. It was unthinkable that anybody would fast during such a, a festive occasion because fasting is associated with sorrow and grief, repentance and bitterness. Well, yet you don't bring that stuff to a, a wedding Nothing was eaten during a fast, though water was generally drunk. Moses' 40 days fast being the exception in Exodus 34. The length of the fast, it varies in, in Scripture. In the Old Testament, I remember that Daniel fasted uh, from royal food and wine, eating only vegetables and water for 10 days in Daniel chapter 1. But later on in chapter 10, he fasted for 21 days. 
There is no scripture that says you must fast for X amount of time. It doesn't say that. For 21 days, it says, he, I sat there eating no choice food, no meat, or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all. Okay, fine. Brings to mind the question, what's the purpose of fasting? What's the purpose of fasting? Do I do it because others are doing it? Do I do it to lose weight? Do I do it because that's what spiritual people really do? Do I do, I do it to gain attention or sympathy? Do I do it as a matter of bragging rights like the Pharisees condemned by Jesus did in Matthew 23? He said, woe to them. You fast and you put on the sad face and you act the part and you want everybody to notice what you're doing before God. You hypocrites. And there are a series of seven woes in that chapter, uh, Matthew 23. Uh, here's the deal. What we should be doing when we fast is to seek God as earnestly as we can while simply denying the flesh. Denying the flesh. The fleshly appetites say, feed me. And I feed it regularly. <laughs> so do you. But do you feed your spirit as regularly? Well, fasting is for the purpose of let's put the flesh aside for a, a period of time just so we can focus on God. Just so we can devote ourselves to prayer and seek His face. And I'll put the flesh on the back burner for a while. We can make up meals later on, but I want to seek the face of God. It is important that we seek the face of God, fasting or not, because otherwise the default position in your life and mine is the flesh. All you have to do to become a backslidden and lukewarm Christian is what? Nothing. Don't read. Don't pray. Don't celebrate communion, don't worship, don't go to church, and you'll find yourself going down a slippery slope that is sometimes very difficult to back up from. The flesh is at war with the Spirit. There's this tug of war going on in your heart of hearts. You know what you should do, but your flesh struggles to do it. You know you should read and pray and devote your life to Christ, but your flesh wants to do something else very, very different. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. Either one's going to pull you this way or the other one's going to pull you that way. But be careful what you let master you. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. If you're seeking God as earnestly as you can by fasting, praise God in heaven. I think that is a glorious thing to do. But I'm not going to fast to lose weight. I'm not going to fast because others expect it of me or because they're doing it or to gain attention or, or sympathy or brag on myself that I'm so much more spiritual. I know there's this tug of war in our flesh and our spirit. Galatians 5.17 puts it well. For the flesh desires, your flesh, desires what is contrary to the spirit. Your flesh wants to party. It wants to get drunk. It wants to do all sorts of drugs. It, it wants to entertain itself. It wants to be obsessed with self. It's all about you. All of these things contrary to what the Holy Spirit wants for each of his children. So you're either ruled by the flesh or you're ruled by the spirit, but you can't be ruled by both. You can't serve two masters. For the spirit, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. You already knew that. There's that tug of war in your heart, in your mind, in your soul where you want to do what's right, but you struggle with. It's described by Paul perfectly in Romans chapter 7 where he says, I know what I should do. Man, I, I, I struggle sometimes and I mess up. I know what I should do, but my flesh wants to do this. Read Romans chapter 7 and see if you can't pencil your name into Paul's. There is that tug of war. How do you win that tug of war? If you got two dogs on the end of a rope pulling each other, going this way and that way, which dog is going to win, the flesh or the spirit? I'll tell you, the one you feed. That'll be the stronger one. Feed the spirit, you'll have less problems with the flesh. But feed the spirit because bringing the flesh under control doesn't happen by accident. If you're not intentional, you'll never rise above the level of marginal at best. You can't. It's a work of this Holy Spirit. It's a work of a supernatural God doing a supernatural work in and through us. 
focusing on the Spirit by denying the flesh is the whole concept. Now, understand this. Fasting in and of itself does not make you more spiritual. It didn't my older brother. He's not even a Christian. doesn't make you more holy. It doesn't make you better than others that don't fast. No, no, no. Don't think that way. Fasting in and of itself does not. It cannot make one more holy. Only God can do that. You can fast from all sorts of stuff, but only God makes the person holy. So if you're fasting to deny the flesh and to put yourself in God's presence, holiness probably will result. But I don't fast to do that, which only God can do. Jesus addressed the subject of fasting in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16. And Jesus said this, when you fast, when you fast, if you want to, that's great. If you don't, whatever. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show that men are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not become obvious to men that you are fasting. You're not fasting for them, you're fasting for God. But to your heavenly Father who is unseen, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's the whole idea. This walk is very personal. It's between you and God. Forget about trying to impress other people with how holy you are. That smacks of Phariseeism. Don't ever tell somebody else, I am so holy. You know, I'm so spiritual. I'm reading my Bible 50 hours a day. You know, I I am there. My face glows when I come down from the mountain. I'm like Moses, except better. Never, never brag on yourself. Let somebody else do it. Let somebody else do it. But to be bragging on yourself puts us in the party of the Pharisees, the self-righteous. All of us have fallen short the glory of God. Amen? So there's level ground at the foot of the cross. You're nobody's spiritual superior. Don't think that you are. We're saved by grace. Walk in humility, please. Walk in love. Walk in grace. I'm not saying you've got to run around like you're in a funeral constantly and weeping your eyes out. Well, that may be appropriate for some, living in repentance. But you can deny yourself many things. In fact, deny your flesh is, is denying yourself worldly interests and lusts. There can be total abstinence. You can fast from certain things like Daniel did. I'm not eating the king's rich pastries and delicacies. I'm just going to eat some vegetables and, and water. I'm not taking wine or, or alcohol for a certain season just to break you of that, of that addiction and, and deny the flesh and deceit God. gives you time to devote yourself to prayer, the study of God's Word, the personal application of God's Word. Have you ever read the Bible that way? Or do you read it like, like Tom Sawyer? How do you read the Bible? Is it just a narrative? Is it just a history book to you? How do you read the Bible? If you don't see it as the inspired, inerrant Word of God speaking to the human heart, then reading the Bible does you no good at all. Ask the Pharisees. But if you're reading the Word of God so that you can be changed, and you're asking the Holy Spirit to apply this precious Word and to learn its lessons in here, oh, there's huge benefit in that. There must be always a personal application of God's Word. Otherwise, like James says, you're like a person who looks in the mirror, but as soon as he walks away, forgets what he saw. Man or woman of God is immersed in the Word of God, thinks on the Word of God, meditates on the Word of God, dwells on the Word of God, intakes the Word of God, and it takes up residence in the heart. Prayer and the Word feed the Spirit as food and water feed and nourish the body. You know, some things today are unique to our society that weren't around in Jesus' time. Have you ever thought about fasting from TV? The average American watches eight hours of it a day. Imagine what kind of person you'd, what kind of Christian you'd be if you read and prayed eight hours a day instead. Well, Sarah, that's pretty radical, Jim. Yes, it is. How many hours? I, I could be wrong. How many hours a day did, did Jesus watch TV? So it's important to us. Why? I'll tell you why it entertains the flesh. It does not feed the spirit. It entertains the flesh. You know it. 
I know it. God knows it. Nothing wrong with TV in as much as it is a distraction from things that you may not want to deal with on the evening news. That's fine as far as it goes. But if it takes time away from your relationship with God, it becomes an idol. It becomes an idol. Consider fasting from TV. For how long? That's between you and the Lord. How about... <laughs> Okay, now let me give you a hard one. How about fasting from your cell phone or social media? Oh, I die without Facebook. That part of you needs to die. That part of you needs to die. Because if your flesh doesn't die, what happens is your spirit will eventually die. Have you heard the term rigor mortis? It only happens to dead people. But it can happen to the Christian whose heart has become hardened and cold and insensitive to the things of God because they are so immersed in the things of the world. Jesus, in the, par in the telling of the parable of the four types of soil, didn't he measure, didn't he, in one of those instances, talk about the cares and concerns of this world? The entertainments, the lusts of the flesh, all of that is tied up in that. For a time, you can deny the flesh to focus on the spiritual, seeking God while denying the flesh, which is at war with your spirit. You've got to feed the spirit, man. You've got to do that. If fasting helps you do that, great. Fasting from food helps you, great. If you need to put down the remote control for a while, turn off the computer, turn off your cell phone, consider doing that before the Lord and saying, Lord, I have need of thee more than this. Is there anything that irks you more than you're at dinner with somebody across the table and they're on their cell phone nonstop? That's rude. I mean, if you didn't know this, can I just inform you, that's rude. If you're out to dinner with me and you're sitting across the table and you got your cell phone all you're doing is this, I will slap you. That is not of God. You know, if you don't want me to be there with you, that's great. That's fine. You can go play with your cell phone. I don't care. But when that becomes more important than your relationship with God, oh, that is a dangerous, dangerous place. How much time do you spend on your cell phone or social media day? And how much time do you spend in reading of God's Word and prayer? Are they the same? Or is it lopsided? Are there some corrections that you not you. The person said, I'm talking to you, that you need to make. Think it through. Just think it through. This is all between you and God. This isn't between you and me. And you, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Jim, you're stepping on my toes. Are you sure it's not God? Are you sure it's not God calling you to an analysis of priorities? I think all of Scripture is the voice of God calling me to reassess priorities constantly. Jesus describes himself in verse 19 uh, as the bridegroom, traditionally such a joyous celebration uh, that, that like, as I said before, lasted for a week. But the Gentile church is the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. He's the very center uh, of attention. In, in Matthew 25, you'll remember Jesus told a, a parable about ten virgins that were attendants to a wedding. And while they were waiting for the bridegroom to appear, they didn't know when exactly he was coming back, so they always had to be prepared. Well, some of them really thought through, we need to bring some oil with us. I mean, the, you know, the lamp with the cloth wrapped around it, dipped in olive oil, that's going to last about 15 minutes, but every 15 minutes you've got to re-oil it. And there were some that oiled it up front and never brought any extra oil with them. And Jesus said, you guys didn't think this through, did you? You don't know when the bridegroom's coming. So I always want to be ready. It is a joy. What a day of joy that will be. But Jesus' message is, is just as clear and bold as it could be. He's, Jesus is saying, I'm not the Pharisees. I'm not John the Baptist. I'm the Messiah. I'm the bridegroom that belongs to the people of God. Wherever I am, it's appropriate that joy be in association in this relationship. So by analogy, verse 20, 
Jesus is the bridegroom. The disciples are the wedding guests. Jesus knew that his physical immediate presence wasn't always going to be with him. He'd be taken by death, taken back up into heaven. There'd be plenty of time for them to weep and mourn and, and such. That would be more appropriate to fast then. They would certainly fast as John's gospel shows how absolutely paralyzed they were, overcome with fear and doubt and mourning and questions when Jesus was dead and in the tomb for three days. What they didn't realize is the, the worst day on earth and the best day on earth were only separated by three days. The saddest day and the gladdest day, just three days apart from each other when Jesus rose from the dead. Can I tell you what gives us joy today? is knowing that he's coming back. He's coming back. He rose from the dead. If you doubt that from a historical, I'm not asking you to take this by faith, but from a historical perspective, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, where's the body? Where's the body? The Romans couldn't produce it. The Jews couldn't produce it. The disciples couldn't produce it. Where's the body? 500 people saw him in his post-resurrection appearances and watched him ascend into heaven. 500 eyewitnesses? If you got a more airtight court case than that, I'd like to hear it. I believe the facts. Even if I wasn't a Christian, I'd have to say the facts are overwhelming. Jesus is risen from the dead. And then Jesus will give, starting in verse 21, two examples that, made the, that make exactly the same point. But more than that, would have spoken to the common man who understood these analogies perfectly. That's, this is what they did. They lived in these times. No one, verse 21, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine... And the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, this is in the day before pre-shrunk cloth. But even the common man <clears throat> in Jesus' day and age knew you don't put a brand new piece of cloth on an old garment when it's ripped because it's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it'll tear and it'll be worse than it was in the beginning. They, they knew typically uh, wine was fermented in goat skins. And if you've got fresh wine, it's going to expand because of the fermentation process. So new wine demands a new wineskin. Old wine, that fits fine. In old wineskins, it doesn't matter. But, but both of these, these uh, analogies that he's using were commonly seen throughout all of Israel. Everybody knew these things. He's stating the obvious but making a spiritual application. There is always a danger of trying to stuff something new into something old, like the, the garment and its patch. There weren't any pre-shrunk clothes in the first century. You, you don't put a new piece of cloth on, on an old garment. And the same principle was true for wineskins. Wine expands under the pressure of fermentation. So if you put it in an old and brittle wineskin, it was sure to burst. But here's the application. The old religious systems of Jesus' day were pretty constricted, pretty firm, pretty set in their ways. They were old and brittle wineskins. They were old garments that were moth-ridden and fallen apart. What Jesus is saying is that the old guard with its legalistic rules and regulations and traditions, which were not scriptural, which were not scriptural, they're not going to work with Jesus' new and liberating gospel. I think fasting was a part of the Old Testament traditions. Tradition. Ever see Fiddler on the Roof? Now, there's a guy who was stuck in tradition. He really struggled. I mean, that whole movie is about the struggle of a conservative Orthodox Jew coming to grips with what he was going through in society and, and in his own family. But the rabbinic interpretation said, though, while the word not, is fasting is not used in that passage about the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that's how we're going to interpret it. You should listen to our rabbinic interpretations. But boy, legalists can get so set in their ways that to revive them or restore them is just about impossible. That's the point that Jesus is making here. 
New ways require new thinking based on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, not human traditions and rabbinic interpretations. When Jesus came, He's offering eternal life. And then He offered His Holy Spirit to those that would receive Him and His sacrifice for their sins. But you got to be open to that. Are you open to the Spirit of God? I know you think you are. But in fact, are you? Suppose God wanted one of you to stand up in service this morning. See, Pastor Jim, excuse me, I have a, a message from the Lord. I'd like to give a, a tongue. I'm counting on God to, to raise up somebody in here who's got the gift of interpretation. Suppose I asked you to speak in tongues. Earl? How about I said, Earl, I need you to stand up and speak in tongues for the next five minutes, and I will interpret. Earl would probably pass out. He goes, I don't speak in tongues. Paralyzingly fearful if you don't speak in tongues. Tremendously freeing if you do. Now, if you have the gift of tongues, you know it. But let me ask you this. Are you open? I had an encounter in Bible college one time. I, had, I was teaching at Calvary Chapel Bible College out in California. And on Wednesday, on Wednesday nights, we had a Bible study at my house. And I had a circle of about 30 chairs and the kids uh, in this Bible study. And towards the close of the Bible study, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Jim, I want you to lay hands on each of these kids and prophesy over them. Instantly, ding, 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 ding. The warning signs were going off in my mind and the excuses started stacking up promptly. God, I don't have the gift of prophecy. I don't have, I've never done it before. And the Lord said, don't you trust me? Are you open to it? And this wrestling match took place in my mind for a number of seconds. You know how fast those things can go back and forth. And I finally said, I'm open, Lord. Do whatever you want to do. But right now, I'm just being honest with you, Lord. I got nothing. I got nothing. So I told the group of 30 college students, I said, yeah, this is going to sound a little, a little silly, but I really believe with all of my heart that God has asked me, uh, because the semester's drawing to close and you guys are headed off into the mission field or pastorate or back home or wherever you're going, I really believe that God has laid on my heart to place hands on you and to prophesy over each one of you. And I'm saying this as the beads of sweat are dripping down my forehead because I got nothing. I've got, I'm not, I've got, but I told him what I felt that God had laid on my heart. I thought, oh, this is not, not going to be pretty. This is not, I'm going to wind up with egg all over my face, in fact, over most of the room. And I, and I got behind the first student, and I went, oh, Lord, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I laid hands on them, and it's like the veil was cleared in my mind's eye, and I could see everything. I could see where they were going, what they were doing, what God had called them to do. And it was amazing to me. I thought, this is so cool. I don't even want to open my eyes. And I said, well, I see you in the ministry, and you're in the pastor, and God's called you to this, and God's called you to this. And, and it was, a, and I went around all 30 people, so totally unique and totally different to each one. And it was amazing. It was, it was like watching a movie with my eyes closed, and, and God was at work. And I, when I was done, I was just going, Wow. That was just amazing. But suppose I hadn't been open to that. Suppose I'd have said, I'm sorry, I'm an old wineskin. You can try pouring all the new wine you like into me, and I, it's not gonna, I can't handle it. Can't deal with it. But in that moment, I was open. And in that moment, a miracle happened. And as, as I've been able to stay in touch with many of those uh, Bible college students over the last 35 years, every single one of them that I've been able to stay in touch with fulfilled what was prophesied that night in that Bible study. That's all it is to be open to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you got anything. You don't. Tell God up front, I got nothing. God wants you to do something. Talk to somebody. Share the gospel. Go this place. Be a missionary, a senior pastor. Go to Bible class. 10,000 other things. And you go, I'm not sure I can do that. <sighs> Take a deep breath and let God stretch you. I know that there have been circumstances in your life where you have felt that you are a rubber band in the hand of God and he is, 
he's stretching, stretching out here. Oh, Lord, I'm not sure I can take any more. And you know the stretching is necessary and it's good for you. You go, okay, Lord, you, you, whatever you want to do, I, I, I'm feeling this stretching. Uh, but I, anymore, I'm going to break. I'm going to break. And God says, now watch this. <laughs> and all of a sudden you go, I didn't think I could survive that. But I was open. I was open, and by the power of His Holy Spirit in me, God in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory is what Scripture says. It's not on your ability or mind to perform. Ours is obedience. That's the only issue on the table. Are you open? Will you be obedient? If not, then confess, Lord, I'm an old wineskin. I'm an old raggedy piece of cloth, and I'm not fit to have this new patch laid on me. I, can't, I just can't handle it. You have religious presuppositions and traditions. Some of them are good. Some of them are just baggage. Let the Holy Spirit tell you which one is which. But if you're not open to God, listen carefully, you're going to miss God. If you're not open to letting this book speak to you, don't ever expect God to speak to you. I have counseled many, many people over the years where I've said, this is what Scripture says. Okay, you've come to me with your problem. I listen to your problem. Here's what Scripture says. Well, I don't want to do that. Then you really don't want to hear from God. Wives, love your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Take care of each other. Respect each other. Wives, submit. I can't do that. Husbands, love your wives. I can't do that. Right, but Christ can. Are you open? Or are you so stuck in your ways? No, I'm not open. He's a Cretan husband, and I'm not going to do zippity-doo. I don't care what Scripture says. Well, I pray that God would break you like a crusty loaf of French bread. That's what you need. Here's the way. Here, I just see God in heaven up here, and he's, he's looking at you right into your heart this morning. And he's, he's going this. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. It's kind of a Clint Eastwood moment, you know, where 44 Magnum is out and God says, you know, hey, well, do you feel lucky, punk? <laughs> you know, 44 Magnum, blow your head clean off. I want to do this the easy way. You know, doing it the hard way hurts. I don't like pain. Do you like pain? Do it God's way then. Do it God's way. Let the Word of God speak to you. I, I don't want to be anything like these guys. So that's the, the parable there. And, and then it comes up to the issue in verse 23 of, of the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> this is so cool. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along and began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? First question I'd have asked if I was Jesus is, why are you stalking me on the Sabbath? What's that about? You guys say, you, you know, you're not supposed to do any work, and here you're going over hill and dale just to follow me. Get off my case, Jack. Of course, I'm not Jesus, and Jesus is certainly uh, not me, so he didn't say that. But what he does say calls into question why we keep the, the Sabbath at all. What is it about? Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It is true, according to the Old Testament, you couldn't get out your combine and go harvest grain on the Sabbath. You couldn't do that. But there was a provision in the law that if you were poor, you could go into anybody's orchard or field or, or citrus groves, and you could pick as much as you could eat, but you could carry nothing with you. So they were going through the grain fields, probably wheat fields, and wheat, it's easy if you take the head of the wheat and you rub it in your hands. Off comes the chaff. In some breakfast cereals, they call that the bran. It's just chaff. It's chaff. I don't care what you, but bran flakes, that's great. It's chaff. It's the stuff you're supposed to blow away and throw away. So they would rub the kernels of wheat in their hand and blow the chaff, blow the ran away. And sooner or later, you got to the, the kernel of the, the wheat stalk in your hand, and you could chew it. Very, very, very nutritious. Very nutritious. In fact, it almost kind of, if you chew it long enough, kind of makes a gum. Kind of makes a gum in, in your mouth. Very nutritious, and you, you can chew on it for a long time if you want to. And that's all the disciples were doing. Why? They're hungry. 
They're hungry. That's all they're going through, the grain fields. Now, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. Now, if it was a steak, that'd be something else, you know, with a little ice cream finish on the backside of this dinner, that would be fine. But you're going grains of wheat? Like I tell my kids, if you don't like what's in the fridge, you're not hungry enough. Give it about two or three hours, this will look a lot better to you. Give it a week, it'll taste a lot better too. But we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. Mm. Don't fight God. He loves you so much. Don't fight him on these issues. Whatever your preconceived notions are about these things, lay those aside and embrace the word of God. Don't be legalistic. Don't be harsh. Don't lay your expectations of holiness on other people. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, and you're not him. You're not him. Let him do his job. Sometimes these rabbis of the first century were so stinking legalistic, they don't mind stalking Jesus as they go through the stalks of grain. They're working their little tails off. What hypocrites. At this time, the the rabbis had filled Jerusalem uh, with their elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath and its observance. Uh, For example, in Jesus' day, (laughs) taken straight out of the Mishnah, in Jesus' day, some taught that on the Sabbath, men could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand across his chest or on his shoulder. That's carrying a burden. But you could carry something with the back of your hand or with your foot or with your elbow or in your ear or your hair or the hem of your skirt, your shoe, or your sandal. Okay, that sounds kind of bizarre. I, I can carry it this way, but I can't carry it this way. There's a difference. On the Sabbath, you, you were f- actually forbidden to tie a knot. What would you do in the age of shoelaces? I don't know, but you couldn't tie your shoes if you were a Sabbath-keeping Jew. They were forbidden to tie a knot, except they always had exceptions in their Jewish mission, their traditions, their rabbinic legalistic interpretations, except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle on the Sabbath. Couldn't tie any other kind of knot. So if a bucket of water had to be fetched from a well, you could not tie a rope to the bucket, but you could tie your wife's girdle to the bucket and lower it into the well. Do you see how absurd the Jewish traditions become? Honey, you got, give me your girdle for a minute. I just need to go get a drink of water. How bizarre is that? How bizarre is that? Deuteronomy 23 it had allowed the activity that's going on in this passage. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. What Jesus is saying is human need supersedes ritual legalism. Human need takes precedent over your legalistic interpretation of the law. They're hungry. The Old Testament allowed them to eat of the poor, the poor to eat of the fields and the orchards and the trees. They just couldn't harvest it or reap it or sell it to others for, for profit. No, no, no. But God always made provision for the poor and the hungry throughout the Bible. Let's go, that's the biblical plan of welfare. It wasn't, hey, Roman government, can you bail us all out? Hmm. Notice the disciples were not breaking the law. The scribes said they were reaping on the Sabbath. Not really. But really, it's not what they did so much as when they did it. They did it on the Sabbath. It broke their traditions, and that really irked them. When I was in junior high in Camarillo, California, uh, you could go throughout. In fact, in that county, citrus groves are found everywhere. My junior high school backed up to a citrus grove, and the farmers allowed us to go in there and to, and to pick whatever we wanted to as long as we would eat it right there on the spot. It was great. We could legally eat and pick all that we wanted to for free. I found out today, you can't do that today. The California Department of Food and Agriculture says picking fruit is a misdemeanor violation punishable by a fine of 50 to $500 or a jail sentence of up to six months or both. You pick an orange in California, you're going to jail? Really? Of course, if you smash and grab in Beverly Hills and steal diamonds, well, that's a mistake. Who cares? 
That's nothing. But you steal an orange out of somebody, out of sun-kissed groves, yeah, you're going away for a long time. Did you know that we used to have a poor farm here in El Paso County? It was open until February of 1984 over on, on the west side. It opened in October of 1900. So it was open for 84 years where poor people could go and work the land and share in the produce that came off of that, that farmed land out there. It was a glorious prospect. There wasn't any welfare. People went out there and, and put their pick and shovel and made their groceries and brought them home. In fact, when it ceased operation in February of 84, it was one of the only last two poor farms operating in the entire United States. And now it's all taken over by the government and their welfare checks. But it's more biblical. If people, didn't Paul say in the New Testament, if a man refuses to work, he shouldn't eat. Feed him. The church is under no obligation to feed him if, if he's that, just that lazy. Then why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Verse 25, so Jesus answered him, haven't you ever read what David did when his compassion, companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bed, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. In other words, human need supersedes your legalistic interpretations as to what we should or shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. You don't have to be anybody else's conscience. You just listen to God and do what God lays on your heart to do in accordance with His Word. But don't let legalists define what that should mean to you. We opened up our church a number of years ago to a, a group who came in here. We thought they were a group of believers. They said they loved Jesus. And on our first Sunday, uh, their pastor stood behind this very pulpit, and he said, everybody who doesn't worship on Saturday, the Sabbath is going to hell for eternity. Really? I thought you went to hell because you didn't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I didn't think it had anything to do with what day of the week I went to church on. And yet, some people add to God's Word. So Jesus points him in verse 25 to what David did. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 21, where David went in and ate the table of, uh, that was reserved for the showbread, the 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was replaced uh, on, a, on a daily basis. The old bread was left for the priests, and they gave some to David because uh, of the, the human need. So David and Jesus are certainly within the letter and the spirit of the law. But there are others that want to add to what the law requires. And then Jesus says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. So knock it off. Stop busting everybody's chops. Everybody needs a day of rest. It's really for man's benefit. Not you were, Man wasn't made for your religious observances. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Wow. That's a, that's, they should have stoned him to death at the moment. He claimed to be equal with God who gave the law to keep the Sabbath holy. Well, Jesus is God, so it's not blasphemy. But I'll bet you that tightened their sphincters substantially in verse 28. The Sabbath was made for man. And I think it's wise to observe the Sabbath, to give our bodies a chance to recuperate. I think if you spend Saturday in, in bed or, or doing whatever, you'd probably be a healthier person. On Saturday, chill, kick back, take it easy. But we today are so amped up. We are so driven in society today that we press, we push all the time to the point of exhaustion. But God made the Sabbath for you. Take it easy. Take a day off. The world won't come to an end. Take advantage of the Sabbath. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 14, verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. The Jews think you should go to church on Saturday, the Christians on Sunday. Another man considers every day alike. God, God made all of them, didn't he? One should be fully convinced in his own mind without trying to convince everybody else. You do what's right in your... You want to worship on Saturday, you should worship on Sunday. You want to worship on Sunday, you should worship on Sunday. I, I want to worship seven days a week. So to me, the day that we all congregate and gather is of little importance. 
I want to be worshiping the Lord 24-7. And whatever day we gather together, we're going to praise Him, we're going to worship, we're going to celebrate communion, we're going to, we're going to do all of this stuff. But Paul says, you should be fully convinced in your own mind. Stop trying to convince others. Knock it off. You're not the Holy Spirit of God. You don't replace the Word of God. You may have strong feelings about these things. That's between you and God. Don't lay that trip on everybody else. Many issues fall under that heading. My father was an abusive alcoholic, so even before I got saved, I was death on alcohol. I wanted nothing to do with it. Saw what it did to my dad, and I didn't want any part of it at all. And I despised alcohol. I made the mistake of despising everybody else who felt the freedom to indulge. I became legalistic as an unbeliever. I didn't even realize it. But dad was such a horrible, abusive, physically abusive father. When he got drunk, he was the meanest drunk I ever saw on the planet. So I became very legalistic. And when I first got saved, I joined a very legalistic denomination that said, you can't drink any alcoholic beverage and go to heaven. That's not permitted. Can't do it. Not wine, not beer, not hard stuff, nothing. You drink, you're going to hell. They were adding to God's Word. It doesn't say that anywhere in God's Word. Drunkenness is absolutely prohibited throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament alike. But they added to God's Word. No, no, you've got to go the extra measure. And you've got to condemn everybody else. That's what legalism does. It condemns everybody else who doesn't see everything just like I do. Like I'm the standard? The Bible is the standard. The Word of God is the standard. His Holy Spirit is the one. And I should have my mind firmly made up about these issues without feeling the need of guilt-tripping you if you feel differently about that. I'm not saying that if you sin, that's okay. That, that is not what I'm saying. But I want the Holy Spirit to convince me, and I will keep that between me and God without feeling the need to convince others. And I think... A lot of people bound up in legalism and tradition, they simply can't accept that. Nope. Nobody should drink, ever on any occasion. You go to a wedding, you better be drinking the non-alcoholic variety. Really? It's supposed to be a joyous occasion. But freedom and legalism are polar opposites. The one will destroy the other. What God really wants, Hosea 6.6 6 says, is mercy before sacrifice. That you, to love others is more important than religious rituals. Isaiah 58 tells us that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. That delivers you from legalism and harshness and historic traditional interpretation. And you let the Word of God then speak to you and your heart. This is between you and God. It's not between you and me. I'm not asking you to live up to my expectations. I'm asking you to live up to God's. But there is freedom in that, to do or not to do according to God's Word. Just because you're free to drink alcohol does not mean you must drink alcohol. If it's been a problem to you or your family in the past, don't do it. Just don't do it. Dad set a bad example for me, so you know, it's kind of something we're just not real into. I don't care about that. We, if I go out to dinner with you guys, you want to have a glass of wine? i got no problem with that. You have 20 glasses of wine, everybody's going to have a problem with you. And I will not carry you out to your car, and I will not drive you home. I will make you crawl on your hands and feet. Teach you a lesson. Jesus, in verse 28, he declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. That's a claim to divinity. Inasmuch as God is the one who had instituted the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was instituted as a covenant between God and Israel, not the church. This is where all of those Sabbath-keeping arguments falls apart. In Deuteronomy 4, God said this, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may uh, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, your God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord God that He's giving you today. And then in Deuteronomy 5, it says, Moses summoned all Israel. That's Israel, not you. Not the United States of America, not the bride of Christ, not the church. Israel. 
Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them. Be sure to follow them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us, Moses reminds the people. God did not make the Sabbath covenant with the Canaanite tribes or any other nation on the face of the earth. God did not lay that trip on anybody but Israel. Are you an Israeli citizen? This don't apply to you then. You want to worship on Sunday? We have the freedom to do that. We celebrate the risen Lord. That's why we worship on Sunday, because you see it happening in the New Testament. That's why we do it. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And then in verse 15, Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you, the Jews, to observe the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, not the other nations, not the church, not the Gentiles, you Jews must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, not the church. I know there are Sabbath-keeping Christians out there today. That's fine. You have the worship to worship on freedom to worship on Saturday, but don't force that upon me or any other member of the body of Christ that feels we want to worship on Sunday. Keep it to yourself. This matters between you and God. But I find these legalists are constantly trying to jam this stuff down your throat. Or you can't even be saved if you don't keep the Sabbath. Really? It was a covenant between God and Israel, not me. I'm not Israel. I don't replace Israel. God said in Exodus 31, this will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. The Israelites Exodus 34, 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. Ezekiel said the same thing in that prophecy that bears his name in chapter 20. My Sabbaths are a sign between us so that they will know that I am the Lord and I'm the one who made them holy. How to stop the judgmentalism on this Sabbath-keeping issue. I, I tire of people writing me letters, jamming it down my throat, and ignorant of Scripture. They cherry-pick the Scriptures that back their argument while, in fact, we are not Jews. And they are adding to the Word of God. Romans 14, verses 4 and 5, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Hmm. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. I do. Every day is made by God. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Stop trying to change other people's mind about this. I hate that tendency in legalism. It comes in a wide variety of forms. But you know legalist people when you come in front of them because they always condemn you. They always come across as your spiritual superior and they always add to the Word of God or take it out of context. Avoid such people. Especially I want to close with this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He is my rest. I rest from works. I rest from the law. He's got this. I'm saved. I, I don't have to earn His approval. I've already got His approval. Don't let anyone judge you. One greater than Moses in our, is in our midst. One greater than Abraham. One greater than Solomon. One greater than Jonah. One greater than rabbinic tradition and legalism. Walk in the freedom of Christ Jesus, but be open to the things of the Spirit. When you read the Word of God, personalize it. Insert yourself in the story and ask God, what is it that you want me to learn? If He is the Lord of the Sabbath, He wasn't offended by what His disciples had done, and these sideline critics shouldn't have been uh, offended either. Be a new wineskin. Be flexible. Jesus does all things new. Don't be so fixed and crusty and hard and unyielding uh, that you can't accept anything new like the 
know-it-all, legalistic, inflexible, and religious, intolerant Pharisees were. You may like hymns. That's great. We do hymns in this church. You may like contemporary praise and worship. Uh, we do contemporary praise and worship in this church. You may like hip-hop. You need prayer. <laughs> Seriously, there's a wide variety of religious expression. You've got to say, I'm good with that. It may not be your cup of tea, but don't deny somebody else their cup of tea. That's okay. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and I, I rest him here. Didn't Jesus say, come unto me, all you that weary are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> Do you know him? Do you know his peace, his, his rest, the, that peace that passes all understanding? Expansive teaching. Well, I know we covered a lot of territory, and I'd like to apologize for keeping you late, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> so I would be a hypocrite if I was. Can I, can I tell you, there's always, there's always more to the text than you see on the surface. That's why I've spent the, the time to go into this uh, detail this morning. You need to understand that everything I shared with you today is straight out of Scripture. The problem is that the Jews inserted in between man and God all of their religious traditions and their legalism, and you got to do this, and you can carry it this way, but you can't carry it that way. Nonsense. Just nonsense. There's freedom in Christ Jesus. And those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. I'm freed from my sins. I'm freed from the tyranny of my flesh. And I'm free to let the Holy Spirit guide and direct me. So, enjoy that freedom. This is our Sabbath. If you want to keep the Jewish Sabbath, tell your wife, I'm sorry, honey, I can't mow the lawn on Saturday. I, I'm just trying to keep the Sabbath, baby. Pastor Jim said, you know... No, I don't want your wife calling me and going, Pastor Jim. Evan, let's stand and close in prayer, shall we?